Welcome to This Is Her Story and a brand new episode. I had the opportunity to sit down and interview Dr. Barbara Brown Zickman. She lives locally in Chelsea, Michigan area. And for those of you who are Enneagram fans, I am fairly convinced that she is an eight. She was refreshingly blunt and I admired so much her logical approach to decisions uh, as she tells different stories throughout this episode. You will, you will hear what I'm talking about. For me, it can be exhausting to make decisions as I weigh all of the what ifs. And yet she was able to step back and take a more objective approach and think, well, let's give it a try. She accomplished so much uh, over the t- several years, decades, really, of her ministry. She's now retired. And I do use that term loosely, as you will hear in this episode. She talks about some of the things she's doing now, um, continuing to do ministry, I guess, unofficially, if you will, in a sense. For those of you who are Nazarenes, this story actually is not in the podcast. Is She was telling me this before we even got started recording. But she has a connection with Dr. Rebecca Laird. She was actually a student of Dr. Zickman's. And she encouraged her to write a paper for one of, uh, one of the classes that she took with, with Barbara um, about ordained women in the Church of the Nazarene. And when she finished that paper, Dr. Zickman encouraged her to turn it into a book. So those of you who are familiar with that, um, you can find Dr. Rebecca Laird's uh, Ordained Women of the Church of the Nazarene. It's required reading for anyone nowadays who will be ordained. Uh, And so that was just a fun connection with her right off the bat. Uh, Also, she's a native Detroiter, so shout out to all those Detroiters listening If you're a history buff, you will thoroughly enjoy this episode. Uh, So I encourage you to get some headphones and listen to this. Um, We did record it in a cafe, so I took as much background noise out as I I could, but I'll tell you, it was probably the loudest cafe I've ever been in. I don't know that I would go there to study at all, but she talks about everything from, we, we talk a little bit about the civil rights movement and birth control whether or not to have children, um, and what it was like to be a woman, not just in leadership, but in the church in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s. She was a seminary president, and in the 90s she she talks about bringing on some Muslims to teach some of the Islamic classes and um, the controversy she had to deal with there. So, uh, wow, it'll just... I'm reminded of some of the things we roll our eyes at. That was progress in those days. And we, we kind of look back now and think, oh, that was silly. But, you know, it wasn't silly at the time, and someone had to be the one who was pushing the boundaries and being a pioneer and breaking new ground. And so shout out to BBZ and... Uh, all of the others like her who make a way for not just women in ministry, but minorities and people who are on the fringes of society in general. So I just want you to enjoy the episode, and we will see you soon. Hello, 
really need to tell better stories instead of complaining about it, right? What if we right. just start telling the stories and really flood the airwaves with something different? So I'm interested how people, how people go through these journeys. I mean, very few people stay in the same faith, community, tradition, whatever. Right. And some of them get very conservative because they want something to hang on to, and others want to, you know, to hell with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the whole, the whole thing. Right. So the nuns, as the sociologists talk about it, the nuns are all, all over the spectrum. There's no commonness to right. the people who bow out. Of why the nuns drop out? I think, I think well, I don't know. When I was at Hartford, they, were, they do a lot of social science research, and you know, they were they were saying this is this is just very interesting. It's it's kind of like emotional, not so cerebral. Right. So why are you doing this stuff? Oh, I mean, so and Jeff, Jeff just says you have to you have to go <laughs> talk with her, and I was like, why? <laughs> and I see him regularly. Yeah. And when he can't preach, he's asked me to preach several times right. because he's got a wedding or he's got something else. You know, he's. Uh, well, Jeff's been my mentor for the last several years because he planted his church and then I planted uh, my church nine, almost nine years ago and so we just we connected up through a weird series of things because his sister ended up becoming my worship leader so he's got family that lives right over here where you are right more than a year ago I was listening to a, a young gal who was like 18 she'd grown up in the church hall on her life and people in her church were telling her women can't be pastors. And I thought, this is ridiculous. We've been ordaining women since... Church of the Nazarene was way ahead of people. I know. And I thought, how is this How is this possible that she could grow up in the Church of the Nazarene and, and not know that? Not know that. And so I just thought, you know, maybe we don't need another theology book. Maybe we need people to tell their stories about God calling them and about their journey and, and just talk about how they impacted the kingdom. First, then I read your Wikipedia page, and you did what you did later on, teach, and you became a seminary professor. So now, were you raised United Church of Christ? Because that's where your ordination is. Well, at that point, it was a congregational church, because UCC didn't get formed until 57. And so I was coming up through high school and junior high and whatever, but we had a great program at this church. In fact, my, my parents were going to Presbyterian Church, but all the kids went to the congregational church on Sunday evening. So I decided, because that's really fun, and they're doing good stuff. And so I did that, and he finally said, he was a historian, and he said, well, you know, the congregationalists and the Presbyterians over the history of the church have been very collaborative, and particularly in the Midwest, because we were in the Midwest. And so he, he said, yeah, go there. Eventually they became part of the UCC. But I was in this group of of people who were, and most of them, the school I went to was predominantly Jewish. I was in Detroit, huge high school, right after World War II, who were saying stuff about religion, because there were Orthodox Jews and there were liberal Jews and there were people whose families had been in the Holocaust. And I didn't know what Jesus was. I said, you know, I've been going to school. Sunday school, but I didn't. So I was like, you know, why is Jesus important? For a while I wanted to be a Jew. I thought, you know, they got to figure it out. And I can't figure out this Catholic and whatever Christian right. stuff. So I started asking lots of questions. And that led me 
to a very wonderful, he was the youth minister, I guess, and he just took over my life in a way that was really important. In fact, it's really interesting when reliving this. His funeral was last weekend. Hmm. He lived to be 93. Oh. And I went to the funeral, and I realized this man changed my life. Yeah. And I, he didn't put me off at anything. I have not even known there were women ministers. I, and I was angry at the church, and I was angry at the world, and I was pretty pushy, I guess I would say. Jesus, I don't think Jesus is worth anything. And, you know, we would talk about lots of stuff. And over time, helped me understand some things I didn't want to understand. I got very involved in the National Pilgrim Fellowship of the Congregational Churches. And then eventually, we, we went on a trip, a youth trip, to Chicago. And we bought our sleeping bags, and we stayed in the Roby House. And you know what the Roby House is? It's, it's an old Frank Lloyd Wright house that Chicago Theological Seminary owned. It. It's a treasure now. They don't own it anymore. It's a, it's a, they wouldn't let kids in there. But we went in there with our sleeping bags and slept on the floor of the Roby House. And I loved what we did in going to the seminary. We went to their worship. We looked at all the books. We talked to these people. Some were women who were preparing for, for ministry. And I was blown away. And so when people, people said, what are you going to do when you grow up? I don't know but I'm going to go to seminary. And what are you going to do when you get done with seminary? I don't know, but I'll figure it out, or God will help me figure it out, or something will happen. So I went off to seminary later, but I had in my head, I'm going to go to seminary. In fact, when I met my husband at Beloit College, I, we talked about lots of things, and when we began talking seriously about marriage, I said, well, I want to go to seminary. He laughs to this day. He says, well, that was the bargain. You know, we couldn't get married unless you went to seminary. <laughs> there was worship. There was intensive learning. There was argument. There was interfaith engagement, because I was just still wrestling with Jewish Christian stuff, and then there was Catholics and all different kinds of Protestants. And I was just charmed. I ended up marrying a man who wanted to become a professor of political science. We had a long courtship, on and off, on and off. And, and then finally... Okay, and he says, okay, the deal is we're going to get married, we're going to go to seminary. You're going to go to seminary, and I'm going to go to graduate school. So we looked all over the country. This is the 60s, by then. Right. And the 60s were exciting in terms of civil rights issues, and we got a very good fellowship to go to Duke. So here are these two Yankees. He grew up in Chicago. I grew up in Detroit, going off to Durham, North Carolina in the early 60s. And that was really powerful. Right. It was lots of Methodism. All of my field work and everything was done in Methodist churches and Duke is a Methodist university. Right. And, uh, and I began to think, while well, he was working on his program, you know, what am I going to do with this? I'm loving the studies, but what am I going to do with it? I don't want to be a professor. I'm, I'm married to one. I don't want to be a professor. Right. I can't remember a, a moment when I decided. It sort of unfolded in, in ways that I didn't fully... I didn't think through, but piece by piece, at one point I decided, if you have power or if you have clout in a university, you usually have a PhD. And I decided, well, I don't think I need a PhD to do the kind of ministry I feel called to. But I know that women don't have much leverage in many situations, 
And if I got a PhD, that would give me more clout and more capacity to do some of the things I want to do. I remember sitting in this office, do this and this and this and this. And in about 15 months, maybe a year and a half, you could pass your exams. And then you could go anywhere and work on your thesis or your right. dissertation. So I went into high-grade gear. 18 months, I did it all, passed my exams, wow. and we left her in North Carolina. But I knew that I had the, the potential potential. I had to get a dissertation. Yeah. And I was so tired of going to school. For a while, I didn't do anything except I got a grant, a Woodrow Wilson grant, which was a prestigious thing. So I had to spend the grant. That meant good research. And Joe, my husband, got a job in Philadelphia. I spent most of that year in the libraries and the archives and whatever. And I finally decided, this relates to the Church of Nazarene, I was really interested in the perfectionist movement. Yeah, well, it's very rooted in Methodism and Wesleyan stuff. Right. And I didn't know much about that because I, I knew some of it when I was in Durham, North Carolina. But I found that the first president of Oberlin College, which was a progressive, very new thing in the 1830s and 40s, that no one had ever written any dissertation or any doc documents um, about the formation of that, the leadership of that. They'd written histories of Oberlin College, but not about the leadership. So a man named Asa Mahan was the first president, and I became his autobiography, not about his biography. I worked on his biography. And that was fun. But I got very tired, and I kept putting it off, putting it off. <laughs> and we did other kinds of things. And, bought a house in the, in the Philadelphia area, and I got a dog, and I took the dog off to... Now, she didn't have to look pretty. She just had to be super smart. The dog shows, and she won all kinds of prizes, and that was, that was great fun. What kind of dog was she? A, a Shetland sheep dog, which looks like a little collie. Right. And she was very, very smart, and I had great fun. And what was fun about it is when you go to a dog show, there are all these people who are just dog people. Right. They are every kind of person you could imagine. And I, we'd pick up, you know, tell, first we'd talk about our dogs, then we'd talk about our life, then we'd talk about what's meaningful or what's problematic, or things went along. And Joe, my husband, was at, at Temple University in Chicago, in uh, Philadelphia. He's an only child, and I have one sister. And then we had this big discussion about family. We'd been married eight years, I guess it was. And, you know, we're going to have a family. And I'd always said, I'm not going to have a family until I get rid of this dissertation. I've got this baby. i got to get this dissertation born. Right. He's an only child of people, but he doesn't go over babies. Right. You know? And so he says, if you don't want to have a baby, that's fine. And I was in my new feminist mode by that time because I you know, really got pulled into some of the feminist stuff that was being written in the 1960s which was a really important time for feminism. Right. You know, and I was right up to here with it, and I was didn't tell a lot of people this until quite recently. Well, I think I want to have a baby, but I'm not sure I want to have a baby. In other words, women over all of human history have babies, and I study women and care about women, and I don't want to miss this aspect of what it means to be a woman. I want to bear a child. But I'm not sure that I want this baby, right. which is so funny because most 
women say they want the baby, but they don't want to go through the pregnancy. <laughs> I wanted to do exactly the opposite. I, I was. I wish they could have just been gift wrapped and put on my door. Painful. Um, but I was like, you know, this is what women over history have done, and I've done so much women's history, and so many women died in childbirth, and you know, the, the issue of bearing children was crucial to women's history. Mm-hmm. So. I was taking the pill. The pill had come out in, I don't know, 1961 when we got married. And so we kind of looked at it and I said, well, I'm going to stop and see what happens. You know, probably we're going to discover we were infertile or something. It's not going to work. Well, I got pregnant immediately. <laughs> so suddenly, there I was, nine months out from baby and dissertation not quite done. And I went into high gear and then, and I finished and went to my final exams wearing maternity clothes. So I had two things that year, two babies. Two babies. <laughs> I had the dissertation baby oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and my son. Oh. We went back to the Midwest. At that point, this is the 60s and early 70s, there was lots of mobility in the academic world and there was not enough people to do the kind of stuff he was doing. So at first I was like, oh my gosh, all of these relatives, I don't think I want to be living in Albany. But it turned out to be the best thing because what happened is they loved the baby. Right, they did. <laughs> and I had two grandmas and I had you know, all kinds of things to take care of the baby. And, and I, I have to give myself credit, which I didn't even know I had the capacity to be a really good mother. You know, I said to somebody, I read enough about the psychology and the physiology of women to know that the hormones are there. Right. And they make you a good mother, whether you even think you can. Right. So, so I had this baby. I'm in Albion, Michigan. My husband's on the faculty. All of my relatives are going about my baby and having great fun. Just began to think about lots of things. I taught one course when somebody was on sabbatical. I did a lot of stuff. Another woman and I got together and said, um, let's form a baby. See, I think we started with the YMCA because feminist movement was all over the place and some people were really scared of it and women were like, well, I'm not a feminist. And so we would have these workshops in the basements of churches, in, in YWCA places, all over South, Southern Michigan. And we would, we would talk about, well, let's look at women's lifespan and the demographics of how women used to die in childbirth. Women used to live to be 50, maybe, if they were lucky. But, but now, look at the demographics. So even if you have a bunch of kids, and you raise all those kids, and you're working at home, they're going to go away. And then you're going to have 25 years of life. And what are you going to do with it? Right. So we really played that big. We'd get them all making charts of their life and what they wanted, and we got to talking about how can you be a woman in today's world, and not just say, well, I'll be a mother and a wife. I had all this education, but some people were a little leery about all this education, but I remember several times people would interview, introduce me, and then they'd say, but you really want to meet her and get to know about her, because she just has a baby who's who's uh, six months old. <laughs> and suddenly I was credible. Right. You know, my sister and I pretty much grew up with this idea of, well, you know, women can be CEOs, and you know, women are starting to break glass ceilings. And, mm-hmm. and my parents divorced in 1982, so my mom went back 
to work full-time and even work two jobs for a while just to support us. So it was never a thing. And so then when I... You have brothers and sisters? One sister. So when I became a Christian and ended up in the evangelical wing, all of a sudden I'm understand this whole you can't be a pastor thing this doesn't make any sense so to me. what kind of evangelical wing how did you get into do you go out to hear billy graham or what happened no um well actually my husband's oldest brother and his wife came to faith in christ in the in the united methodist church they had kind of started talking to us more about faith and gave us a bible and then they went off to asbury Mm-hmm. I know all about Asbury. Yep. Yeah, so they went off to Asbury, and you know, so they were encouraged to find a church. And so we ended up in the Nazarene church through kind of a friend, a friend kind of thing, ended up there. And it just... At Asbury is where you connected with? Um, with... No, we connected here in, in Michigan, okay. in the Detroit area, mm-hmm. with the Nazarene church. But they had gone off in, to Asbury, and when they got there... For a while, while they were United Methodist, and they ended up in the Free Methodist Church. Although, ironically, my brother-in-law is back in the United Methodist Church now, so <laughs> he's kind of done the whole tour. And he was influential of saying, no, women can be ministers, women can be preachers. You know, Oberlin did educate women, although the president of Oberlin, Azamahan, who I wrote about, would never acknowledge that a woman should be ordained. And they never would acknowledge the women to read their final paper at graduation. So a man had to read the woman's paper. I get this call from Asbury. I've got a baby who's maybe two or three years old. They want me to come down to Asbury, and they want me to give a lecture about Asa Mahan and perfectionism and uh, Wesleyan traditions that feed into this. I was flattered because nobody had ever done that. I was all excited. I wore pants. Oh no. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to wear pants. Nobody said a word. But I learned later from several women that you really caused a you know, flurry. They didn't know what to do with you because you weren't supposed to be wearing pants. Right. But I was this, as, as one, one student said to me, well, you weren't really a woman and you weren't really a man. You were sort of a neuter thing. <laughs> as something, a, a way to dress. I mean, I dressed in a kind of a suit. Right. But, I mean, I had a jacket. And I did right. not have a skirt, and that was not appropriate. Right. At Asbury. Oh, goodness. <laughs> you know, later, several people told me, it was good for you to come. We needed to talk about all that. Right. <laughs> the Wesleyan movements and the ways in which Asbury managed that was really very creative right. because some schools were so rigid one way or another. Um, that it really was destructive for women. But Asbury was not destructive for women, at least with extremes. Right. It's progressive at the time. You gotta think about that, you know? Sometimes we we look back at history, we have to remember that was progressive. That was progressive. Right. Yes. One thing in your book I read, which was fascinating to me, you were laying out the congregational centered, institutional centered, spirit centered Uh congregations which it fascinated me that the spirit-centered churches, like the Church of Nazarene, Free Methodist, mm-hmm. they tend to be the ones, even though initially when they were first birthed, they made room for women, and now they, they're dragging their feet, and the other two are the ones that are uh, way ahead of the game, you know? The kind it's, of it's interesting. It has flipped in, right. in a way that's kind of 
fascinating. I think that the power of the Holy Spirit, the mystery of the, the working of the Spirit, and the incapacity to say no, meant that the, the Wesleyan traditions could do things because they had that, you could always say, well, the Holy Spirit. Right. And that gave liberty to a lot of things, not just to women. Denominations that were more cut and dried, presbyterial or Episcopal or whatever, they were more driven by the structures that kept them in mind, and they needed to keep those safe so they wouldn't let women in. And then later, once they changed some of their structures, it was like opening a window and the air came in. Right. Immediately. Right. And so some of the most progressive changes were done with some of these very stuffy material or, or traditions. Right. It's not something you would expect that they would be ahead. The other thing is, is the local autonomy of the churches. Congregationalism, Baptists, are all local church autonomy. Right. And if they decide um, in one congregation they're going to do X, Y, or Z, and, and they're led by the Spirit, they do it. Right. And that's really given great liberty to a lot of Southern Baptist women. Right. There's hundreds of Southern Baptist women, but the, but the Baptist Convention doesn't acknowledge them. Right. In the early days, they did ordain women, especially like their missionaries. Yes. And then they, then they came along and took all their licenses away, and I thought, how, how, do, how do you unordain somebody? You can't do that. It's like unbaptizing someone. You can't do that. It's, it, once it's done, it's done. Right. Yeah, that's right. But it is very interesting that, that the polity of the churches or the ecclesiological structures of the churches opened doors not just for women but for racial changes, for for uh, scriptural interpretive expansion and, and ways of looking at uh, scholarship about biblical or historical materials because you don't anticipate it to come from there. <laughs> I remember talking to somebody because Duke was, was Methodist lots of Methodists, various kinds of Methodists, but they were Methodists. And I remember thinking, once they made a decision to ordain women, all kinds of great stuff happened. Right. Because the discipline said it was okay. They just let some people loose. So they, all these churches would just sign up for getting a seminarian to come and be there. And, you know, I was one of the few non-Methodists. I learned a lot. I really learned a lot about Methodism. I had a lot of respect for Methodism, but I also learned that was not a Methodist. Right. The building that we purchased where we worshipped was originally United Church of Christ, and it was built in 1958, so literally a year after they wow. became an official denomination, so that yeah. the whole time they were there, and they were there for over 50 years, you know, their congregation, a lot of them moved out of the neighborhood, because the neighborhood we're in is the old World War II houses, you know, that they... They built right they after built they came right back. Right after they came back, you know, so they're all like 1,200 square feet, two, three-bedroom homes and stuff like that. So a lot of those families moved out. Most of them ended up actually staying with us when we purchased the building because they're like, we we built this thing. We're, we're going to stick it out to the end. Nice. Like, all right. So they, and they did. They've been wonderful. But then, the, uh, of course, the irony, we planted in the middle of the recession, and it brought the housing prices down enough that all these young families were able to move in. So now we have all these young families that have relocated in the neighborhood 
and they're getting kind of to see it all happen all over again. Echoing what happened way back when yeah. World War II was over. Yeah. There is something here about the call. You're talking about the call and how the different center denominations had different reactions. But because the spirit-centered ones had these crisis moments about their call, which in person, I sit on the board of ministry for our for our district, and that's a big thing. Like, if you don't have one of those, the right. kind of church you're part of, you're a suspect. Right, and we and we have to constantly we're constantly working on them to articulate this, articulate this call. Um, and so it was it was fascinating to hear the other side. Not there at all. Yeah, yeah they're saying is too thin and too fragile that you've got to have a foundation of understanding of the ecclesiology, of the ways in which um, ministry functions in many different levels, and it's not just spiritual experience, and that all of those things have to be tested before ordination would be accepted. Like when you were telling a little bit about your call, it was it was an unfolding more than anything else. It was. I can't say that there was a moment when I said, aha, I want to go to seminary. I didn't think I would be a minister. I never met one. I didn't even know they existed. It must have been before I could drive a car. I got my dad to drive me way across Michigan to a ordination of a woman. And I get there, and it's an older woman who had been a missionary and come back from the mission field and then wanted to be formally ordained so that she could do ministry. She was very interesting. And afterward, I went up to her and I said, I want you to talk to me about being a woman in ministry and how this is. If you're going to be a woman in ministry, you cannot get married. You cannot have any babies because it's just too complicated and, and the Holy Spirit will not give you the strength to do all that together. And I was crushed. I was just really, I was angry. I was crushed. I was deflated, I was, and I finally, I lived through that. I remember talking to this uh, young pastor that coached me and mentored me and saying, how does she know? And he was very, he was very supportive. He said, you can do it. You just have to keep, keep yourself open and keep exploring different ways in which the Spirit's guiding you. And at some point you will know that this is what God's calling you to be. I can't remember a moment when I said, oh yeah, there it is. But I did eventually come to a conviction that yes, all of this, all of these things were coming together in ways that were telling me this is God's message that it's okay. At Duke there were a hundred men and three women when we entered in 1961. One was Methodist, one was Presbyterian, one was me. And we were just ignored. It was fascinating. You go into the required biblical class. There's like 60 guys sitting there. Professor walks in and says, Gentlemen. And then he looks at us and says, Oh, ladies. I mean, several times that kind of thing happened. But then there were a couple of professors. Actually, some of the ones that were quite surprising. One was a professor from Eastern Europe who spoke with a very thick accent and felt to me like he was very sure that all women were just taking care of babies in their house. He asked me to be his teaching assistant, and he mentored me, and he said, you can you can do things. It's okay. God's calling you. So I had other people telling me that, but many times I didn't believe them. 
when you're in the congregational tradition or eventually UCC, you go in care of the association. The association checks with you once a year. And you have to be in care a certain number of years before they will consider you for the ordination. And I went into care when I was in high school because I had this wonderful mentoring situation there. So then I go off to college and I'm in care for another four years. And then we go away from there. I'm working my dissertation. So I was in care for seven years. And each year I had to go back and talk to them and tell them what I'm doing, how the Spirit is leading me, if, if there's a call to ministry, or if I'm ready to move on to something else. That was very good, good discipline, where you had to really step back and say, what do you want to say to them? What's been happening to you? How are you doing in your life? Or they finally looked at me after the seventh report and said, we want to ordain you. I said, but I thought I had to have a call, a formal call to some recognized ministry. And he says, we know you really well, and we've decided that somehow God's going to find a place for you, and we should not stop. Yeah, they were very in step with the Spirit and listening. And yes, yes. And knew that God take care of it in his time. When I was ordained, I've been thinking about this this week, because I went to the, the funeral, and then the guy, Gene, who was this young, young pastor who had just graduated from Chicago Theological Seminary, who died at age 92, he preached my ordination sermon. Really? And when we were talking about it all, I remember saying to him, how do you dare to be a minister? The audacity of a human being trying to be a person who embodies and expresses and teaches and, and prays and does all this stuff. This is, I don't know how I can ever say I'm ready for ministry. How can you dare to do that was the question I put. So he starts out the, the ordination sermon with, we're going to talk about how you dare to be a minister. That, you know, you have to dare. That's what it is when you are a minister. Because you're never worthy. You never, ever deserve it. You are gifted. And if you dare to do something God's calling you to do, or even other people are calling you to do, and you're not even sure, but you dare. Right. And that's what happened to me. Others see it that maybe I'm not seeing. And that was a bit humbling, but also very empowering.